You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, resources and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast each week with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author extraordinaire. Her latest book is The Wolf's Howl, the second instalment in the Maven and Reeve mystery series, and it's available right now in bookstores and online. But today, you're listening to one of our in between episodes where we leave Alison to her authory adventures and we listen to a story session, just you, me, and our guest author of the week. In our story sessions, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, read by the author, along with some insights into their writing life and process. It's a great way to find your next favourite reader, and you don't even have to go outside if you don't want to. This week, I've chosen The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital by Joanna Nell. I love Joanna, and I love Joanna's writing. This latest novel by Joanna, whose previous best-selling books include The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, The Last Voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker, and The Great Escape from Woodlands Nursing Home, which you can actually listen to the first chapter of in episode 358 of So You Want to Be a Writer, which is a story session just like this. And of course, it's wonderful to see Joanna doing so well in her writing career as she is one of our Australian Writers' Centre graduates. Now, In The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital, Joanna has once again, once again, written a novel full of charming characters, humour and a lot of heart. Here's the blurb so you can find out a little bit more about what's in the book. The Marjorie Marshall Memorial Cafeteria has been serving refreshments and raising money at the hospital for over 50 years, long after anybody can remember who Marjorie Marshall actually was. Staffed by successful generations of dedicated volunteers, the beloved cafeteria is known as much for offering a kind word and sympathetic ear and often unsolicited life advice as for its tea and buns. Stalwart Hillary has worked her way up through the ranks to manageress. Joy has been late every day since she started as the cafeteria's newest recruit. She doesn't take her role as the intern quite as seriously as Hillary would like, but there's no doubt she brings a welcome pop of personality. 17-year-old Chloe, the daughter of two successful surgeons, is volunteering during the school holidays because her mother thinks it would look good on her CV. Chloe is at first bewildered by the two older women but soon realises they have a lot in common, not least that each bears a secret pain. When they discover the cafeteria is under threat of closure, this unlikely trio must band together to save it. And before Joanna reads the first chapter, she's going to share the inspiration behind the story with you and a bit about her writing process. So here is Joanna Nill reading the first chapter of her latest novel, The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital, which is out now with Hachette Australia. Hi there, I'm Joanna Nell and I'm the author of The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter, so here we go. First question, what inspired me to write this story? 
unlike my previous books, which have been inspired by works of art, sculptures and Archibald finalist painting, this book was actually inspired by an infection in my son's elbow, which is, I suppose, quite fitting for a, a story set in a hospital. It was at the end of 2019 when we were visiting family over in England and on New Year's Eve my son showed me his elbow and it was clear that we needed to get him some antibiotics so off we went to the local hospital, the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. I hadn't set foot inside this hospital for 30 years since uh, I finished my medical training and I was really interested to see that in many ways the hospital was completely unchanged including the volunteer tea shop or kiosk where um, volunteers would serve uh, refreshments to the staff and, and visitors and patients. But what did worry me was that further down the corridor, a big chain of coffee shops had opened up in direct competition and people were lining up to get their flat whites. And as we left, I was really worried that this might be the end of an era for the kiosk. And I suppose the story was exploring how far would the volunteers go? What would they be prepared to do to save their tea shop from closure? You could say that this novel is really a love letter or a tribute to these unsung heroes who give up their precious time to volunteer and often raise really large sums of money used for vital equipment and services in hospitals. The second question is, can you describe your writing process? I'd like to say I had a very efficient and consistent process, but it does tend to vary between books and also depending on what else is going on in life. I think a lot of my writing process is, is thinking time, and that can be thinking the night before about what I'm going to write the following day, driving in the car or particularly out walking. I'm a big walker and I need to have that walk first thing in the morning to let the thoughts flow, to get my head around what I'm going to write that day so I, I know when I sit down at my desk what I'm going to write. I'm a bit lazy when it comes to plotting. I wish I could write more of a detailed plan and stick to it before I start but I usually get quite impatient to get on with the thing. So what I have is a basic story arc in my head. It's um, an outline of the key plot points um, and the different beats that I need to hit in that story. In first draft mode, I tend to write a scene a day. I will think about that scene before I start, what needs to happen and who the characters are going to be. And I just get on with it. I write it. I don't go back and reread it. I don't edit it. And I try to keep the momentum going. As I go along, if I think about things that I want to change, I write them down in a notebook. But I just keep going to the end of the first draft and then I let it sit for a couple of weeks, at least a couple of weeks before I go back. By that stage, I have much more idea about who the characters are, what the book is about even, and incorporating all these notes that I've taken while I go along. The third question is, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? I'd say the one that sticks out in my mind is when I got the feedback from my editor. She advised that I should cut two of the scenes in the middle of the book. Now, these were my two favourite scenes. We'll call them the IKEA scene and the CPR scene. 
I had loved writing these. As I was writing them, I had a big smile on my face. The words flowed. And there was a lot of humour in in these scenes, which is perhaps why I enjoyed writing them. So I was a bit taken aback by this and determined I was not going to take this advice. I was going to dig in my heels and make a good case for keeping them. But when I printed out the whole manuscript and I reread it, I saw what she was getting at, that the pace stalled when we got to these two scenes, which were one after the other. And I decided that there was something in this that I had to kill these two darlings. So the IKEA scene I deleted completely. And what I'll probably do with that is offer it as a a freebie on social media. The second scene, the CPR scene, I did keep that, but I changed it quite a bit. I put a lot more into it. I made it work much harder. And that was a useful lesson to me. And it's something to remember when working with an editor in that you don't always have to take every suggestion they make. But usually, if they've pointed something out, do have a look at it because there's often some some merit in what they're suggesting. The next question is, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? The most rewarding part was actually handing in the manuscript after I'd finished the final edits. I found the process really difficult. I started the book during lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic. And like a lot of writers I'd spoken to, I was at an all-time creative low. I was finding it very difficult to get any words down at all. I hate using the word writer's block, but that's really what it felt like. It felt like I was wading through glue. And this book needed more drafts and rewrites than any of my previous books. So it was really very rewarding to see that that redrafting process actually resulted in a successful book at the end. And the last question, what are my top three tips to aspiring writers? My first tip is that if you're stuck and the words are not flowing, leave your desk and go for a walk. As I said, I'm a big walker. It tends to free up my thoughts. Um, And even Friedrich Nietzsche once said, all truly great thoughts are conceived while walking. And I'm a big believer in this. So take out your earbuds. Don't walk with anyone else. Just try and walk on your own in nature if you can. I can guarantee that your head will clear and before long, the thoughts and the ideas will start flowing. My second tip is to do with writing scenes. When you're writing a scene, think about what that scene is doing. Why is it there? What's the purpose of that scene? And it should fulfill at least one purpose. That is to either reveal character, to advance the plot somehow, or put in a a twist in that plot, to seed a little bit of important backstory. But it should always increase the tension. The third tip is be brave when it comes to writing step outside your comfort zone. And if you have two ideas, one of which is a safe idea and the other one scares you, you're not sure if you can pull it off or whether you should write it, that's the one to go for because the writing will be better. And having that level of excitement and tinged with a little bit of fear will make it a much better story. So on to the reading. Chapter one of The Tea Ladies of St. Jude's Hospital. Life in the bus lane. This wasn't how she'd pictured her life ending. 
With the red light looming ahead and the car showing no signs of slowing, she prayed it would be a swift and painless exit. Hilary had contemplated death as often as any other woman of her age she imagined, but she'd always envisaged slipping away peacefully in her sleep. In the event of an accident, she would have preferred something more glamorous and more befitting a woman of her worldliness, say negotiating a hairpin bend in the mountains above Monaco, being eaten by a lion during a private safari, or mauled by a polar bear on an Arctic cruise, not in the passenger seat of a 30-year-old Ford at the hands of her own sister. Hilary shut her eyes and braced herself against the dashboard, the seatbelt tugging reassuringly across her bosom. Airbags must still have been a luxury extra when the Ford rolled off the production line. That the old blue bomb was still going was a miracle. That her 82-year-old sister Nancy was still alive was equally miraculous, given both her dubious driving credentials and her 40-a-day habit. The woman was indestructible, which is more than could be said for the iceberg lettuce and four wrinkled tomatoes inside the designer handbag resting on Hillary's lap. For one ridiculous moment, her concern was for the welfare of the hand-stitched Italian leather and salad items in the event of the imminent collision. She held her breath and waited. Out of curiosity, when the anticipated crunch and splinter of metal and glass didn't occur, Hilary opened her eyes. The traffic light had turned green and Nancy was now in the bus lane, leaving other more patient drivers in her wake. Hilary released her breath and her grip on the sun-bleached dashboard. The windscreen was so encrusted with dead insects that she could only decipher the faint outlines of the children in the back of the school bus directly ahead. Nancy, we're too close. Oh, do stop fussing, Nancy replied. I've been driving a lot longer than you have. Six years. Six years that would always award her sister the final word. Even now, more than 70 years after the age gap had cast them into their respective roles. A lifetime of tiptoeing around her older sister, like keeping a wary distance from a tense ball that might explode at any moment. Hilary's foot splayed against an imaginary brake, the road frighteningly visible through a hole in the rusted-out footwell. The one saving grace was that this strip of moving tarmac at least led to the hospital. Their chances of survival were increasing with each crunching gear change. Nancy cracked the driver's window and launched her smouldering cigarette butt into the path of the vehicle behind. Then she leaned across towards the glove box for another. Hilary retrieved the cigarette packet for her. At her age, Nancy was beyond redemption. In the end, it all came down to damage limitation. For heaven's sake, slow down, said Hilary. But I don't want to be late, said Nancy. Fat chance of that. Outpatients always ran late. It was a wonder they assigned appointment times at all. She'd often wonder why they didn't use little paper tickets, like the ones you had to tear off at the supermarket deli. If you carry on like this, we'll end up in emergency, not outpatients. For your information, said Nancy, turning her entire body to face her passenger, I have a clean driving record. I have never had an accident. It was true, technically. The dents and scratches on the blue bomb all involved inanimate objects like gateposts or brick walls and had given the car's bodywork what Hillary's interior designer would have referred to as a patina. As a result, the other road users gave it a conveniently wide berth. I do wish you'd let me drive for a change, Hillary said. 
You've seen how dangerous the roads are around here. You have enough stress in your life already, with all your money, your friends and your dignity gone. All you really have left is your little job at the cafeteria. Nancy reached over and squeezed her knee. And me. You'll always have me, she said. Her liver-spotted hand, which should have been on the steering wheel, was little more than a thin bag of bones. In the ten minutes since they left the house, Hilary had counted 19 occasions when Nancy had removed both hands simultaneously from the wheel. This included three bouts of coughing, two attempts to dislodge the jammed-in dashboard lighter, and once to extinguish a small fire in her lap. The other times were a miscellaneous assortment of personal readjustments, obscene hand gestures to other drivers, and an expletive-laden attempt to revive the defunct speedometer. Judging by the angle of her seat, tilted so far forward that her bony sternum almost touched the steering wheel, Nancy's eyesight wasn't great either. But Hilary knew better than to pass comment. If the past 76 years had taught her anything, it was that Nancy had an answer for everything. Take the coughing and wheezing. I'm allergic to next door's cat, she'd respond. Or her over-reliance on prescription sleeping tablets. It's the worry. When asked what she had to worry about, she'd answer, You, Hill, I'm worried about you ending up lonely and abandoned, especially now you've lost your looks. As for the squalid state of the old family home they now shared, You wouldn't understand poverty, Hill. You have a big house and a rich husband. Then she'd backtrack, Sorry, had a big house, had a rich husband. Nancy'd waited long enough for this moment, and she was entitled to her schadenfreude. Hilary knew it was no more than she deserved. She was past the disbelief and the anger stage. The hurt and betrayal had left her numb more than anything. She was merely clinging to the wreckage of her former life and trying not to sink. This was usually Hilary's cue to recite her debt of gratitude speech about how she could never fully repay Nancy for staying at home to care for their elderly parents, pointing out gently that she'd tried to make life easier by helping with the bills and expenses, stopping short of reminding her that even the blue bomb had also been a gift, back when it was a solid, low-mileage, roadworthy vehicle and not a death trap that would surely have their mechanic father rolling in his grave. At least the engine was still running, unlike her luxury convertible that had failed to even start that morning. Cue Nancy's I-could-have-been speech, how she could have been a doctor or a lawyer, a catwalk model, even an astronaut if she hadn't sacrificed everything so Hillary could run away and marry Jim. They were two seasoned actors following a script in a long-running play, and the curtain never really went down. When the blue bomb finally skidded to a halt outside the hospital, Hilary discovered tomato juice leaking between the seams of her handbag. The prognosis for the lettuce wasn't looking good, but there wasn't time to celebrate arriving in a car and not an ambulance. Nancy tugged on the handbrake and unfastened her seatbelt. You can't park here. Hilary pointed to the red letters on the ground and the sign only millimetres from the front bumper. This is the emergency drop-off. An outpatient appointment hardly counts as an emergency. Nancy made a sound through her nose. Well, if your sister having a shadow on the lung doesn't constitute an emergency, then I don't know what does. Fine, just don't mention my name when they tow you away. A column of ash toppled from the drooping cigarette at Nancy's lips. Leaning to one side, she disconnected some wires beneath the dash and finally the engine died. 
For a woman who was supposedly facing a potentially life-threatening diagnosis, Nancy looked remarkably well, or at least no different to how she usually looked. She'd looked 80 since she was 40. Only her stained fingers and hacking cough hinted that her filthy habit might be catching up with her. The first customers would be checking their watches outside the cafeteria by now. Ten years of faithful service behind the counter and Hilary had never once taken a sick day or been late to flip the sign on the door. Nancy was talking again. She stubbed out the remains of her cigarette and emptied the overflowing ashtray through the open driver's window before winding it up again. Are you listening, Hill? Sorry, what was that? I said, don't you worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm used to doing things on my own. Here we go, thought Hilary. Act two. Nancy's whole shadow on the lung drama had unfolded remarkably quickly. There was something fishy about the timing, too, coinciding with a comment that she didn't want to outstay her welcome and was thinking of looking for her own place. She was prepared to give her sister the benefit of the doubt, but couldn't muster any sympathy yet. The best she could offer was pragmatism. Nancy could take it or leave it. I told you I'd come with you to the appointment. Just let me open up and give Joy her instructions, then I'll meet you in outpatients. It's right next door. No, I wouldn't want to tear you away from your precious cafeteria. She knew Nancy didn't really mean that, but she had a point. Even if Joy turned up on time for once, which was about as likely as Nancy agreeing to go to the optometrist for an eye test, Hilary couldn't leave her to orientate today's new volunteer unsupervised. Not when she was already harbouring serious doubts about inviting Joy to stay on at the conclusion of her trial period next week. You're right, Hilary conceded, picturing the potential mayhem Joy could cause in an hour. Are you sure you'll be okay? Lip quivering, Nancy nodded. Do you have a spare pack of tissues in your bag, or will Dr Goldman have a box? Don't worry, I guarantee there'll be tissues. It was true, there was always something to mop up in a hospital. The emotional pot shots continued out on the footpath as Nancy gave a conspicuous cough into her hand and appeared genuinely disappointed not to find her palm covered in consumptive blood specks. Pop in for a cup of tea afterwards, said Hilary brightly. She didn't want to imagine her sister driving home alone after receiving bad news from the oncologist. If her role at the cafeteria weren't so vital, she would simply put a notice on the door and be there for Nancy. Then again, this was the same woman who'd dragged Hilary back from a Mediterranean cruise, supposedly, to their mother's deathbed. Only for Hilary to find the old dear watching a country practice and tucking into a packet of licorice all sorts. Still, if it wasn't for Nancy, she would have found herself out on the streets six months ago. So where should her loyalties lie? With the children's ward and the sea life mural she'd vowed to raise the money for? Or with her sister? Nancy cut a rather pathetic figure as she hobbled towards the hospital's main entrance, swamped by the oversized raincoat she insisted on wearing whatever the weather. When the giant glass doors eventually swallowed the fragile figure, Hilary saw her for what she was. For all their bickering, Nancy was her only living relative, her own flesh and blood. Love it. Just love it. Joanna's stories are always so wonderful and this is no exception. Joanna mentioned that she is usually inspired by art or architecture. And if you go back and listen to episode 256 of this podcast, you can hear the strange inspiration behind her debut novel, The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. 
I thought it was interesting in her intro that Joanna says she aims for a scene a day rather than a particular word count or a whole chapter or a set time. Every writer finds their own way to write novels and I hope that by listening to all these different authors that we're bringing to you, it'll help you figure out your own way too if you're penning your own story or your own novel. Joanna also highlighted the importance of scenes and how each scene needs to have a purpose. If this is something you feel you need to work on, if you or if you really just want to master your scene writing so that they're just so compelling and it makes readers want to read the next scene, then our course Fiction Essentials Scenes is perfect for you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Fiction Essentials Scenes, is your ultimate guide to creating scenes that build your story piece by piece and engage your reader until the final page. When writing a novel, around 80% of your time is spent constructing and editing scenes. They're not just an integral part of stories. In most cases, they are the very essence of what drives a character and plot forward. This course will not only help improve your storytelling, but also save you several drafts and many hours in the process. Every author wants to create vivid scenes and settings in their novels, and this course will give you a behind-the-scenes blueprint for every story you write. And because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash scenes. That's writerscentre.com.au slash scenes. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at Writers' Centre AU on Twitter and Instagram and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.